This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Thanks very much for joining us on today's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, my David. Kira Murphy. Kira Murphy. Hello there, all. And Ken Early. Hey, what are you doing? All here, not too bad. Well done, Ken. You've hit your cue already. Yeah, Murphy's <laughs> struggling early <laughs> no, on. I was, I was just thinking that you were going to name it, or three names I was thinking, full I thought for I'd, the start of the year. It's and a new then. year. You've got, to, you've got to try new ideas here, Murphy. Now, the opening weekend of 2015, I'm going to say it, it lacked one real focal point in a sporting sense. I'm not saying there wasn't good sport on, mm. and good sport, but there was no... Well, it was FA Cup weekend, so, you know. There wasn't much. FA straight Cup. Away, straight away. It's straight away, FA Cup. I mean, yeah. even, you have nothing but the magic of the FA Cup being rammed down your throats from the middle of last week by BBC and by BT Sport as they were showing the games, right? Then it comes around to the weekend and you're thinking, all right, I've heard a lot about these blithe Spartans. Oh, what a plucky underdog story this is going to be. They're playing against Birmingham. Oh, but that's on at three o'clock, so nobody can actually show it on TV anyway. Yeah, and they nearly pull it off. The both stations nearly missed this most magical moment of the FA Cup in years because neither of them chose to stick it on at a time that they're allowed to show matches. There is still this arcane rule that you can't show a match at three o'clock on Saturday in yeah. the UK. And maybe Yeovil, we're gonna we're gonna put one over Manchester United. That was yeah. always a, that was a possibility. <laughs> possibility didn't quite happen though. So no FA Cup, but maybe it's no bad thing to have have to you know to have to look outside the Premier League to pass the time because you end up as I did last night watching Phil the Power Taylor going for his seventeenth world title in a row. Not in a row, sorry, but seventeenth world title before uh, falling at the final set in the final set to the flying Scotsman Murph Gary Anderson seven six thriller going the way of the flying. Uh, Mr. Scotsman. Mm. I, I wasn't watching. I was the only male aged uh, 18 to 45 in Ireland not watching the darts. Um, it's passed me by a little. Uh, oh, I have to say the whole the whole darts thing there. Because uh, like, it's kind of like watching a stag party on television with, with some sporting element to it. I mean, it might as well be the paintball that if, uh, you're, forced, you're forced to go down the Saturday afternoon yeah. of a stag weekend. I mean, it, it could be that. 
for all of the actual interest that the spectator the spectator is watching like in whatever you know on television I think people maybe you know they are interested in the darts um but for the people there it's you know mayo for sam twenty fifteen written on a placard yeah. uh people dressed like characters from the Lego movie. It having a whale of a time I mean uh, they do have an absolutely amazing time so best of luck to them and all the rest it did look kind of like a giant uh, beer hall you know with the with the yeah. long tables and you could quite exactly see like. most people yeah. were concentrating on the food and beer <laughs> uh, rather than the darts I assume they can they've got TV screens to watch to watch that on because it'd be well, quite hard to see what's going on in the board but I watched a bit of it on, and it was I've got to say pretty good it unfortunately just got overtaken by various other things Barcelona were losing to Real Sociedad um, so I was watching a bit of that. Then there was that show on Charlie, so I thought, well... Sure. You wanted to watch a little bit of that. And I thought, does it really matter what happens in the starts? It does, Ken, because it's not just sport. It's a study of the human psyche under extreme duress. Well, that, As the commentator said, Ken, right? Yeah. I'm going to give you a couple of, couple of random quotes. Gary Anderson right now is learning a lot about himself as a human being. Phil the, the Power Taylor. The flamboyant Gary Anderson. Phil the Power Taylor. Uh, as he, <laughs> Phil the Power Taylor was coming back showing incredible bravery, the commentator said. No, he posed the question, Ken. In what dark recess of his darting consciousness is he finding this from? Yeah. This is amazing stuff. Well, his darting consciousness. Um, I think he actually said conscience, but I would have thought consciousness made more sense. So, Well, you tidied it up for... Just tidied it up. I just sub-edited it here for the purposes <laughs> of bringing it out on air. I, I could have got it wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I know. But like, I, I, like, no, Murph, it's I, okay. You're, no. you're sounding like a, an angry old man who just... I think it, is, it is funny, though, how it does... How you just need Completely. really need to watch it for about five minutes before it starts to kind of suck you in. Same as every sport. Um, no, 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 no. There's something about the darts that it's just it has the, a really weird effect the on the faces people. of the of the competitors watching <laughs> watching their uh, reactions. You know when they win or lose or when they miss. Uh, you know, it's all and up also, there, yeah, also yeah. the fact that there's constantly there's this constant repetition of these pressure moments. You know, mm. they happen pretty regularly. <laughs> Those, uh, you know, a guy buries three darts just outside the mm. double top, and you're like, oh, God. It's like a penalty that. shootout over the course of the entire game. <laughs> is a penalty shootout. Yeah. The most intense event of the weekend, though, seems to have taken place in the athletic grounds in Armagh, a McKenna mm. Cup match, a pre season tournament with nothing at stake but the old rivalry between the home team and Tyrone. Mixed with it being Kieran McGinney's last game, Murph. Uh, resulted in the stadium getting swamped with supporters. Way too First many supporters game. for the ground uh, to handle, yeah. He's not going to get the sack, I would have thought, uh, on the back of this result. Oh, it's just his only game in charge, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, eight, eight and a half thousand people um, at Armagh. And then you look back across the course of the Christmas, 25,500 people in Thomond, 18,000 at Ravenhill for Ulster against Connacht. It turns out, literally, anything will do to get people away from their families at Christmas. That's basically it. We hate our family so much that, and literally, any maybe that's the maybe that's the appeal of the darts. I that must be it. Maybe that at Christmas time you'll do anything not to have to talk to your parents, whether that's attend a sporting event or watch two fat men uh, throwing arrows at uh, uh, at a wall. You hang on. You're trying to tell me that those lads in Pink Panther costumes aren't genuinely enjoying themselves? They're oh, they're enjoy- they're would they are 100. The game itself, this the football game, the Armagh throw match, ended with four red cards. We're going to mm-hmm. chat to Oshie McConville about this later on, but um, 14 yellow cards. Four, four was it 14 yellow? 14 yellow cards. How many black one, cards? A one black card. Just the one. So yeah. again, the black card has been just about forgotten about in, no, in terms no, of. No, no, there's a, it, there's been a leveling off. 
one is what I would say of the black card. Right. So basically, if something, if someone does something particularly egregious in the last five minutes, just to remind people for the next time they attend a football game, someone will then the referee will give out a black card right at the end of the game, just so yeah. you know it's it's kept at the back of people's minds. So uh, that may be what what happened yesterday. Leinster received a much needed boost in confidence with the win against Ulster over the weekend. If you enjoyed the Ian Madigan try, I know in particular, yeah. He, um, for people who didn't see it, Madigan was chose to five, penalty about five six meters out. He chose to go for touch rather than um, rather than take the points. Although he, in the end, he didn't go for touch. He took a sneaky little top penalty to himself and dived underneath two Ulster players to score what turned out to be a match winning try for Leinster. Yeah, he was completely on his own. Uh, no, no support whatsoever. Um, but he wasn't because there was a mystical force. Uh, driving him over that line and that was sheer desperation at having done something that could potentially look make him look extremely stupid and there there may be no greater motivating force in life than the motivation to ensure that you don't look like a total idiot <laughs> I've gone for this friends. now I better make it work yeah. out yeah. so he, ma- he did manage to spin over the line uh, just about uh, and good for him and we must applaud that sort of uh, maverick thinking in the game well, we'll drag Simon over here to the microphones in a little while to chat about that. We're also going to have Jerry Thornley in studio, but the performance of the Christmas period probably went to Connacht on New Year's Day. A brilliant come from behind win at home to Munster, and we're delighted to be joined by their head coach, Pat Lamb. Uh, Pat, thanks very much for chatting to us. Firstly, you're unbeaten at home all season, some big results there so far, but given the come from behind nature of this one against Munster, the opposition that you were up against and the tough conditions involved, is this the most pleasing result of the season so far? It's probably our, our best team performance um, you know, for the season. We've, you know, we, we've had some good performances and, and bits and parts, but uh, certainly, um, even though we we gave them a thirteen 0 start by um, you know, a couple of our errors, um, I think we've shown right to the season the the culture and the belief in the team that um, you know we keep fighting right to the end, and um, you know we came home pretty strong. Uh, Thing I was probably most pleased about in all the enterprise, our defence was really good against Leinster and Ulster, um, and um, but certainly our attack was a lot better in, in tricky conditions. So all in all, we you know we're pleased, but certainly not satisfied. We uh, we you know it's a long way to go yet, uh, just past the halfway mark, and we just stay focused on our on our big goals. Well, you talked about the attack there, Patton. You know, watching that game, you're you're assuming at thirteen nil down and in those conditions that. There's only one way back into it, and that's kind of route one back to basic stuff. But it seemed like your team maintained their belief that they could play a bit of rugby despite the conditions. Yeah, you're right there. I think one of the things we've been talking about uh, throughout the season is about being calm. Um, and the thing that all our, whenever we highlight opportunities and all our good play after every game, it's all around our systems and structures, our teamwork and the things that we train. When we highlight the things that don't go quite well or missed opportunities, it's because we've gone out as individuals or we've come out of that structure. So the, that uh, grows belief and confidence. And then when you're in the middle of it, and this is where our senior players like John Muldoon, Mills Muleyna, and um, and so forth, they you know they just keep everyone calm and drive them back to our, our structures and 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 the plan that we have to uh, to really apply pressure on the opposition. Um, and that's that's been the um, uh, the most satisfying thing whenever we found ourselves in trouble is just no panic, just calm, and it's, it's get back into it. Do you uh, have you put a special emphasis on the games against the other Irish teams? Given that uh, you know it's, it's the same amount of points for a win and all the rest of it, but if you can pr- pr- prove if Connacht can prove their credibility 
amongst the, the four Irish provinces, if they can get in a par with the other ones, you're going a long way towards actually being one of the, one of the best teams around. Yeah, um, there's no doubt derby games, whether it's in Ireland, Wales, Scotland or England, are massive. And um, it's, it's vital that uh, uh, that's where recognition comes when you consider, when people look at the four provinces, you know, we understand where we sit. Um, but in our day-to-day, it's all about every day being better and the process of uh, when we get to a game, it doesn't matter how big the game is, there is no A game or B game, it's a case of you do your preparation uh, to ensure that you can be at your best on that given day. Certainly when it, there's a bit more riding on it, when either it's an Irish game or whether it's, uh, a, sorry, an Irish derby game or whether it's at home. And um, But I think the, the, the prep and we take, um, the prep, preparation we do before every game doesn't change. And it also helps, you know, we had some young young guys to play in their first game throughout the season. And, and I always say to them, look, um, you know, they've played well in the, uh, in the lower grades, whether it's the club or our Eagles. And I always say to them that it's a bigger stage, but nothing changes. It's the same old pitch and the same old players. And it's about you just doing your job. So, you know, just to try and keep them uh, not so nervous and calm and, and just realising it's a team game and you're not on your own. Yeah, so it's not a case of, of putting, making one game out to be the be-all and end-all. It's more of a, yeah, an idea that, that every, every moment should be, should be important. And by that definition, then no moment is, is, it should be too overwhelming. Yeah, exactly. I think that brings consistency. If you're consistent in your day-to-day preparation and, and the way you train and the way you prepare, then that you'll get consistency on the field. So that's been a real driver, you know, since we've been here. I know one of the things I noticed, I've got, I've got a great bunch of guys who, yes, young and experienced, um, you know, across some areas, smaller squad. However, they're coachable, they work hard. And um, if you can channel that all into, you know, having good structures and systems, then they get confidence that they don't, they're not playing rugby on their own. And I think some of them find it frustrating when they go back to clubs because they try to do things. And I, and I say, and, and to me, it's just a testament that, you, that what we do here is teamwork. That you you go try and do the same thing you do at club, but if the guys around you aren't doing the same things because they're on a different system, it doesn't work. And um, so it's everything is team. We're all get around teamwork. What about the skill level that you've found uh, amongst the players? There, you've talked about some of the younger players that, that have come in. Ha, have you found a lot of work has to be done? I mean, we heard stories of you bringing, uh, telling everybody at the start of the season that you have to have a rugby ball and bring it around everywhere just get the feel for it is that is that true or is that one of those stories that people just latch no, on to it was, it was definitely when I, when I came in it was when I looked at uh, you always do a profile of your squad and but more importantly whenever I coach I, I never coach to what I have I coach my, my whole vision is around there's three areas there's the game itself and that game is based around being comfortable playing whatever game it, it takes and it's more important over here in the Northern Hemisphere because it's such a long season and rugby if we're playing right now in January and December is totally different from the start of the season and the end when the weather is a lot different so you've got to be comfortable being able to go through the middle around the team over the team and, and to do that you need if you got if you imagine you've got a little board game and if you've got 15 guys on the field that are multi-skilled in different areas then the more more chances that you can apply pressure in different ways. So first thing I needed was um, as long as you've got people who coach, you can you can teach skills and um, and that's why with the coaching staff around um, you know when I have Dan McFarlane who who's very successful in our in our set piece work and um, and our forward play and um, and a very good assistant coach and then I have Andre Bell um, that, that does the the kicking and the backs uh, the backs work but then Dave Ellis I brought. Pers- specifically for skill development 
and and does a lot of one-to-one with our injured players, with all our players, and they do on a, a, a skills program, which is all based around what we need. And then all they're doing is upskilling these guys so that we can get better. And part of the thing when bringing the rugby ball, and I, know, I just noticed that a lot of players, when I grew up, we always you're pretty much born with a rugby ball and you take it everywhere. It just becomes second nature. So I just wanted to, um, you know, again, even though we get older, we tend not to do it. So they all have to have their own ball and they, they end up, you know, they take it wherever they go. Even if they get funny looks walking around Galway, uh, walking around Shop Street there, uh, throwing a rugby ball well, around. As they've, got, as they've got better, they haven't had to carry it so much, so <laughs> they, can be, they can be selective. Um, but, you know, we, we haven't cracked it yet, and it's skills. I'm just talking to a young player now and, um, you know, looking at a contract going forward, and, and he's coming out of the academy, and as I spoke to him, I said, well, when does your development stop? And he goes, never. I said, good answer. <laughs> never stops. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah, it's interesting to get this insight, Pat, into your, I guess philosophy is the word, but it's funny, I heard Joe Schmidt in the last week or two making the point that he doesn't, he says that, obviously we saw him with Leinster and we saw a certain style of play there, and with Ireland it's been a more limited game plan, for want of a better word, and he said, well look, I don't necessarily have a philosophy, it's not like I, I believe the game has to be played a certain way, I just, whatever job I have, I, I look at what I have at my at my disposal, I look at the time frame that I have to coach players, and yeah, and I kind of work it accordingly. Would, would you be similar, or would you have a very definite philosophy that the game should be oh, played? Oh, no, somewhere? no, my, my, my philosophy is all very similar. My philosophy is very much around, there's three areas. There's the game, as I mentioned, the other two areas is the culture, and um, and the other one is your leadership. You know, so um, as I mentioned to them when I came here, uh, you you won't find me just looking at the game and working on the game as a coach. I'm very much involved in driving the culture and uh, and driving the leaders because ultimately, if a player it doesn't matter who he is, um, I've been very fortunate to be successful teams and also unsuccessful teams, and those three things stand out. That one, they all you need can't have one without the other two or you can't have two without the other one if a player doesn't truly believe he belongs you won't get the best out of that player um and and you need leaders to be driving it you know and they drive the culture because i always say vision drives your leaders your your leaders drive your culture and your culture drives your performance and um you know and then the game as i said you've got to be comfortable playing whatever because each week you face different conditions different opposition with different strengths and you do your work and i've got to give a bit of a shout out there's an unseen guy who does a lot of work here a guy Connor mcphillips used to play here you know he's our performance analysis and the work that he does um you know they'll ask him to he does a lot of detailed work around what the opposition strengths are and um and he helps the other coaches and without that sort of work and detail you know, um, we can't apply the plan we need to. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, and um, and I'm very thankful for what the management do here because we are maxing out everything we can out of what we have. Yeah, just lastly, uh, Pat, we saw that you were, uh, the Rugby World Cup bid is up and running and hopefully that will deliver a World Cup in 2023. But you have mentioned you'd like to see the IRFU include uh, a new stadium, 20,000 capacity stadium in Galway as part of that bid. Uh, why do you think that's so important to the future, Connacht? Well, you know, I mentioned 20,000. I threw a number out there. Sure. You know, but, one not, but the main thing for me is that I believe there needs to be a, a good rugby stadium here because I mean, our supporters are unbelievable, you know, and, and they, you know, we want to look after them and the experience and you want people to come to quality grounds. But, mate, this place, I, I'd never come to Galway before I, um, I signed up here. But I, the, the, everyone you ask around Ireland, they said, oh, the whole West Galway is a, a vibrant city. It's going, and honestly, I haven't been disappointed and there's so much wouldn't you have all the festivals and that and you know to grow the game and you know in the whole of Ireland you know you've got your strongholds of Leinster, Munster, Ulster but to have a good rugby stadium here for the people because this grand game has grown rapidly on the back of the success of the Irish team and obviously us doing well um, you know I, I 
just these last three days I've had off, I went to the Cliffs of Mole with my family and people coming up there, well done. And then I went to a lunch and kids want to take photos and they, they come from far places of uh, up Sligo away. So there's, there's, and they're just talking about how, you know, neighbours talking about the GA people, but they're coming to the game for the first time. And um, and to me, it's not about rugby versus GA or, or soccer or anything. It's just about uh, a pride in your area. And this area really could do with a, a stadium that looks after our supporters to just enhance the experience. And then that will hopefully lead to World Cup in Ireland. And we saw the impact of it in New Zealand. Um, of one country in the same sort of size, it'd be massive. And I think the best place to bring would be Ireland and uh, be able to showcase, you know, all four corners of this pla- of this beautiful country. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, listen, Pat, glad. Yeah, it sounds like you're enjoying the job anyway. And uh, thanks so much for talking to us today. No problem. Pleasure, guys. Cheers. Our Jerry Thornley is uh, in studio to talk a little bit about what Pat was talking about mm-hmm. there, and Simon's popped in as well. How's it going? So, not too bad. Now, um, we talk about when players come over, Simon, um, from other countries, about buying into the culture and all this kind of thing. Just judging by uh, hearing in depth from Pat Lamb there, it seems like he's certainly, as a coach, he's bought into what, they, what they're trying to do in Connacht. Yeah, and before he came, because he was up against, I think, some other Irish coaches, potentially for that job, um, there were some suggestions, so... Will Pat Lamb really have the same commitment to it? Should we be generating some Irish coaches? Because at the time, it was also the Hemisphere guys around. But I think he's proven, and with the progress this year, um, at this stage, he's a success. Yeah, and he's talking about stadiums. I'm at the World Cup bid there, so they're the kind of things I would imagine that Connacht fans would like hearing, that he's not just talking about the next result. He'd like to see... Connacht obviously would benefit him if uh, if more and more resources are put into he, Connacht, Jerry. He brings a kind of very... He's actually turned out to be a good fit in the sense that he's Samoan more than New Zealander and he's bringing a Samoan edge to it, if you like, and what it's like for a small island to be competing against a bigger island. It, it fits well in with what Connacht are about. He knew the history of Connacht as a province. He knew what he was buying himself into. And the word is he might well sign a new contract. I mean... He's a giver, not a taker, if you know what I mean. He wants to leave a legacy, and um, he brings an awful lot of passion to the job. And you can see he's, he's really energised the whole province, Simon. You go there, you go there like, um, on New Year's Day, and it's even the programme sellers and the shop just inside the gate. And everybody's just doing everything with an awful lot more enthusiasm than they were a couple of years ago. It's amazing what a successful team does. We talked about this with Dennis Hickey, I remember one morning here, and you know, people, as with, as with Ulster and as with Leinster and as with Munster to begin with, supporters will buy into a successful team in any sport and help by the fact that his recruitment has been excellent as well. Tom McCartney, I mean, a real unsung hero, as well as Bundiaki and Mills Molina, high-profile science players, supporters like that, and they're buying in. The, that was a 7,740 7, sellout Newsday, and unlike a lot of the sellouts you, you're told about, that actually, um, actually did look like one. It didn't look like You don't see from, a few yeah. thousand extra seats <laughs> exactly. that are knocking around the place. Actually, yeah. genuine. So yeah, I think he really believes in the whole province and leaving a legacy. I think he's there for the long haul and he's energised. Everybody's brought in some very good um, assistants around him. And Simon's right. Like when you think back at the start and the big campaign to get Eddie O'Sullivan that job from um, the supporters in the media. And there was a lot of criticism of Pat Lamb's appointment. But um, you'd have to say it's been a, it's been a real boon for the province. That he's idea, a, he's yeah. a visionary. That idea of the new stadium does mm. that. That's typical of him. And, and is that essential though for go? Is that the next step, or could that even be overreaching slightly? Are, are they at a stage where they do need to actually move into a bigger, nicer, more modern stadium? Oh, they do. I mean, you know, when you think of how Eric Elwood banged the drum just even for the ground to look better, and they brought in the Clan Terrace, and what's that? What that has done? It's generated a shed-like Gloucester-type atmosphere in the home ground. Um, there's a real love in between the supporters and the team now. It's helped make. 
inserted into the fortress now that it's become. I mean, when you think they lost most of their home matches last year, and this year they're unbeaten in eight games, and I've been lucky enough to be in a couple of them, the Leinster one and the Munster one, and it ha- they have developed this place into a fortress, the supporters are buying into it. And I think any World Cup bid has to include Galway, certainly, and all the better is it, if it is with a purpose-built rugby stadium. You know, New Zealand were able to build a few rugby-built sta- purpose-built stadiums, like in Dunedin, and it, that, was the, that was one of the legacies in New Zealand from a World Cup bid, and I think it would be a great legacy from a World Cup bid in Ireland if there was to be a purpose-built rugby stadium with a capacity of 20,000 in Galway, because certainly any rugby World Cup bid or any rugby World Cup potentially in Ireland one day without Galway would be a nonsense, because nobody throws up an occasion or a party better than Galway. I was quite taken by the uh, the focus on skills there and him confirming that story that he did give uh, a ball to each player at yeah. the start of the season and say yeah and just say go around walk around with that because um, you, you think at provincial level the the coaches are getting a finished product or to some extent they can't really change what they have they can move the pieces around they can sign players but even within the space of half a season the team are looking more skillful and I think that happened with Joe Schmidt as well with Leinster and you think those things can't really be changed, but actually if there's a real focus on it and it's every training session and it's in the players' minds all the time, like the the comeback from Connacht against Munster, everybody was talking about the win in the second half, but it actually happened from a running game and brilliant passing right. and Marmion's passing mm. at scrum half was unbelievable. And and they just committed to what they were they thought they were good at. Mm. So they actually didn't kick amazingly well or, or have one of these raking things from their own 22 to the opposition 22. It was actually skills, decision-making and great run in rugby. What are the uh, challenges now then? Because we, we were talking about consistency there. They have it at home this season um, for the most part. But are, are we going a bit over the top on them um, just because we've had Pat Lamb on the show here or are they genuinely looking no, like no, they're, they're genuine. They're I mean, the you way. have to say they look like genuine contenders for top six place and with that will come automatic qualification for the European Champions Cup. This is unheard of in the professional era that Connor would do that. And I was talking to Anthony Foley after the game and I asked him, is this the most competitive? I mean, the Irish province, if you look at them in the league table, they've been pretty much joined by the, at the hip, third, fourth, fifth and sixth for about six weeks now. And in and the, even the order is getting a little bit shaken up occasionally. And I was asking Anthony Foley after the game, look, how competitive now are Connor? And he says, this is the most competitive they've ever been since Warren Gatland's time. If you remember Warren Gatland, he really rejuvenated them in the, in the late 90s and he was only there a short while. Heaven knows what might have been achieved. Again, it was through bringing in... Um, Kiwis like Junior Charlie and uh, and others, and with him as a coach, and there's a Kiwi type influence here, and you know, there's a even as the worst the weather conditions loomed in on New Year's Day, and they don't like playing in those kind of conditions anymore. I remember one year they beat Leinster, right, Simon? This isn't a new thing. We can't say just it's all down entirely to Pat Lamb because no. Eric Elwood had a big big part to play in this. I remember them beating Leinster one year. And uh, Gavin Duffy got the ball with 29 players in front of him and started a counter-attack and ended up with good old Michael Swift scoring in the corner. And I didn't see a better try all season. So I think, but yeah, he, he's helped improve the skill levels for sure. And, and they, they don't actually like playing in the wind or the rain afterwards. John Muldoon was quite adamant about that. We don't like the wind or rain. We want to run the ball. But they had to adapt to it. And Kiwis, I just think Kiwis are... Are well disposed towards doing that. You know, you see Bundiaki just wanted to join in with everything, wanted to pick and go. Mills Moline as well, Tom McCartney, his line out throwing, I think he didn't have one quicker, quicker throw, had a 17 throws, they won 16 of them. He was their leading tackle count 
player um, and others have improved around them with these kind of standards they're setting so I think they're, they're genuine they still have a slim squad they wouldn't have anything like the strength and depth of the others I wonder how far they can really take their Challenge Cup ambitions to be quite frank about it it's a better season for them to finish 6th in the Pro 12 than it is to win the Challenge Cup because of the way the boundaries have been redrawn so I think they have to prioritise the league Alright let's talk Leinster and uh, there's been a lot of negativity in our chats and, mm-hmm. and just around them full stop over the last little while have they dispelled a lot of that with the second half performance against Ulster? It certainly helped and I, I would imagine watching that game that they would have felt better in the dressing room afterwards than they would have done for some time to finish on the high of scoring that try uh, through Jack Conan and the way that the young back row adapted after he went off was very encouraging when you think of how Ulster took the game to them initially. It was very reminiscent of the semi-final two years ago when one instinctive moment of brilliance by Ian Madigan effectively was the difference between the sides as they kept Ulster trialless and they pretty much did the same again. A moment of individual brilliance by Madigan but this time finished off with another try. I don't think it's ticked all the boxes or it's answered all the questions about them. I thought some of their back play is still quite pedestrian. Simon's talking about the skill levels and you're right about Joe Schmidt improving the skill levels. To be quite honest, they have deteriorated under this yeah. under this watch. They just have. There's, there's no other, and you can attribute that in some to some degree to the loss of Nasebo, O'Driscoll, and Sexton, and so forth. But it is not. They're not playing the same skill level. They're still finding it as difficult to penetrate through the backline as they have been doing, and um, you know harder tasks lie ahead. But they one great thing going for them, and that is they've got this. They can fall back in the RDS. You know, they've not lost there in 26 matches now, going back several seasons. And I can't imagine there's too many longer unbeaten runs now that Claremont's is gone. Mm. And that's a great thing to fall back on, particularly with Castor coming in round five of the, of the Challenge Cup. But the, the worry for them is suddenly wasps are flying, particularly since they've gone to Coventry. The Madigan try that you mentioned there, the moment of genius. What I, what I enjoyed about it was the fact that quite clearly this wasn't one of those many pre-rehearsed moves you see in rugby because the, the teammates are just standing around. Suddenly he's gone in and there's no support for him. So if he gets... Held up, he gets held up. <laughs> well, if you th- I think that was one of the things. One of the, it wasn't all positives for Lancer. It was a great, the, probably their best 40 minutes of the season yeah. in terms of performance in the second half. But what they were was just, I thought, Jerry, a little bit cheekier and a little bit more guile about them. And that Madigan quick tap typified it. Um, Jack Conan as well. He just, he had a go a lot of times. And if you think the best moments from Leinster this season are when they just have a little bit more cheek about them, for want of a better phrase, like the own red and quick taps. Um, that saved them against Harlequins. Um, they're just better when they're being the more adventurous team. And I, it was almost like they were, it's not, because all the players are saying O'Connor doesn't straightjacket them, but they looked as if they were playing that way to a plan and to a bad plan for most of the season. Whereas the real bright moments have come when they've just, just gone for it a little bit, for yeah. want of a better phrase. And they've also not been helped by, you know, bugbear mind is that they're out, they're out half, be it Jimmy Gopperth or even Ian Madigan, to a degree again at the weekend, are playing a little bit too deep at times and it's not doing their midfield or their outside backs any favours and you see up, you watch the opposition defence against Leinster and they can just drift across too easily. So they've still got to rectify that and, and get some go-forward momentum. But I agree with you, the, the thing about Madigan is that he will do that in a game and he will alienate his own teammates as well because he'll go off script but that's the, that's the price you pay because he will also un, un, he will open up a match because he will back him he will back himself there was so much pressure on that moment though yes. I, I, and, it, it and, occurred to me afterwards because his overall game in the first half was, was iffy was iffy and the second half there were still a few dodgy mm-hmm. moments and a couple of strokes yeah. of genius so it was all the, our interpretation of how he played well mine anyway was all based on that try working out and then yeah. you're going away with positive feelings about him mm. if it hadn't worked out you'd have probably said he had a bit of a nightmare yeah. which yeah. is uh, which is not, again he might be the only player on the team who'd be willing to take that bit of pressure onto himself and actually go for it yeah and you, I think you know 
Joe Schmidt would be encouraged to see Madigan do that and Leinster and Joe Schmidt and everybody involved with Leinster wants to see Madigan grasp this opportunity and really get better and more convincing in, the, in, as, as in terms of his game management particularly because he hasn't had an awful lot of time at that half this season or last really when you think about it so he's playing a little bit of catch up and it's probably his confidence in playing a 10 and he wants it so much that he's almost in danger of trying too hard. I still think that Paddy Jackson, although his comms looked shot, that was a very encouraging performance by him in terms of his game management, where he took the ball, his distribution, um, and so forth. And, you know, Joe Schmidt just desperately needs these two guys to start playing better and better and better over the next three or four weeks because one of them is going to be starting in Rome. Jerry, what do you think of the fact that Madigan has suddenly got a chance at 10 with the news that Sexton is out with concussion? Is that coincidence? Is Matt O'Connor <laughs> helping out? I mean, it, it does seem a little no, strange. No, it's a very good question, isn't it? I mean... Joe Schmidt is adamant that he doesn't um, influence provincial selections. But surely if Johnny Sexton is ruled out for 12 weeks, including the Six Nations opener, and therefore potentially beyond, it would be almost remiss of the Irish national coach not to ask provincial coaches to at least have a look um, at a certain player in a key position like that. Yeah. And I would have... It seems, it seems too coincidental for me. A bit like... Robbie Henshaw happened to line out at inside centre for the first time in his career in a Challenge Cup match two weeks before playing at inside centre for Ireland. Yeah. Um, me thinks it was just too much of a coincidence. Yeah, I just wanted. And I, I, that's no criticism of Joe no. Schmidt. I think no, he should be doing it's that. Working and, well. you know, we want the system to favour the international team more than it has done over the years. You know, we've always had that debate in Irish rugby that maybe the provinces have had too much sway, almost the expense of the national team. If the balance has been tilted towards the national team now, particularly in a World Cup year. I don't think there's any great harm in that. Yeah, just one thing on Madigan as well. If we've been harsh on him, particularly on the first 40 minutes against Ulster, he, he's finally got a couple of games at 10. Because with Ireland, he hasn't got a run, obviously, at 10 either. And he seems to have gotten better over the course of those couple of games and culminating sort of in the quick tap and getting better and better towards the end of the Ulster game. Luke Fitzgerald has been getting better and better mm. as well. And I know you were, I saw you tweeting, Simon, during the game that maybe himself and Henshaw could be the centre partnership yeah. for... Ireland, we, we, the, ar- the argu- height, they call that in politics. The, ar- the argument being just get your talent on the pitch and then <laughs> yeah. worry about the combinations later. But yeah, just because they seem like the, maybe the two form backs actually in Ireland yes. over the last yes. few weeks. Um, mm. And it's funny because, you know, Matt O'Connor was talking uh, a few weeks ago about the stretches and the exercise and the preparation Luke Fitzgerald has to do to do a training session, never mind a mm. game. And yet when you see him, he looks the fittest man on the field. He looks the most flexible man, the most explosive guy so he's obviously performing miracles to get to the performance he's at. And it, he looks already like an Irish player, even though he's a few weeks back from a very long term. Yeah, and I agree with you on all of that. And he's getting a run of games, which is great. He's been up his fitness. But it was the way he hit the ground running after, I mm. think, so little rugby. Uh, yeah. None since March. Uh, three games since March, something like that. And there isn't that anxiousness in his game. You know, sometimes he's almost, again, like trying too hard and yeah. overrunning the ball. Yeah. He seems very composed and very confident in his own skin about what he's doing. So, yeah, I would say that himself. And it's ironic that in the, in the first post-Brian season, um, given that, you know, all the worries about who would take over at number 13, you're right, in the last few weeks, and certainly over the weekend, the best two Irish players probably on the pitch were the two outside centres. Yeah. And you could see Henshaw 12 and, and Fitzgerald at 13. That could work. Paul and Limerick emailed in for you, Jerry. Setting captains at irishtimes.com. Leinster, Munster, Ulster and Connacht all had sellouts over Christmas. Edinburgh, Scarlet, Zebra and Ospreys got their biggest crowds of the season uh, and more competitive games all round. Does Jerry think the Pro 12 is now a better competition? I don't know, better than what? Maybe better than previously? Uh, yeah, well, it has to improve incrementally from just because of the importance now attached to it in terms of your final league position. It's never been more relevant. 
And um, I think it's going to give, it's going to sustain the interest throughout the table longer than it's ever done before. And this is only the first season of it, in effect, because nobody really knew the parameters at the end of last season. And it's also conceivable that there will be relatively little Pro 12 involvement in Europe um, after mm-hmm. the Six Nations, which in turn will add an awful lot of importance to it. So I think, yeah, you, you saw the top four all lose the weekend. I don't know if that would happen in any other league. So it is a very competitive league now. And uh, it's compressed things in the top six or seven. And although Connor are flying high in six and now looking up the table, you have to be wary as well of the Scarlets, who had a very good win over the Ospreys and well-deserved win and are a very dangerous team floating around in seventh. So, yeah, I think, I think there are encouraging signs for a league that gets criticised that maybe things are on the up. Just a quick word on Munster. We haven't really mentioned them, bar the fact that they lost to Connacht. They did have that brilliant performance and victory yeah. over Leinster. Yeah. Where, where are they at yeah. now at the end well, of the period? I was at both games and they were very interesting because they basically got out Munstered in Connacht. They did to Leinster what Connacht did to them. Um, I mean, they only 25% of the possession in sports. They were well beaten. Um, to be still standing and going for a bonus point at the end was actually a bit of an achievement because they were, they were well beaten for about 30, 40 minutes um, before that. They had started very well, but just lost their way. Against Leinster, I thought they were excellent. I mean, you know, when you think there was no Paul O'Connell, no Peter O'Mahony, no Conor Murray, uh, no Simon Zebo, um, guys like Billy Holland really stepped up the plate, CJ Standard, Tommy O'Donnell was excellent for the 15 minutes he was on the pitch. And um, they, they weren't that shy of a bonus point win themselves. I guess maybe it shows you the value of home advantage with these, front of these sell-out crowds and want to do it for your own parish, your own people, and that it's very hard to put together back-to-back wins over Christmas yep. when, you're, when all the derbies are going. All right, Jerry, Simon, thanks a mil. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I knew a butt was coming at the back. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is gone. James, James, James Tony is gone. Iran Barkley is gone. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. He should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. We probably shouldn't be surprised when matches between Armagh and Tyrone produce a type of fervour beyond what is seen in, I would say, almost any other intercounty. Fixture. I mean, the 2005 Ulster final replay. I remember attending this one with you at Croke yes. Park when even Peter, I see even Peter Canavan, we know by interviewing Peter Canavan on TV last, uh, last year that he's a, a tough enough cookie. Mm. So he's not exactly afraid to mix it. But it did seem quite nuts that he, the silky forward, comes on to try to win the match for his team, gets involved in a scuffle and is immediately sent, sent off the field. Uh, didn't quite, the old substitution didn't quite yeah. work out as required by Mickey Hart that time, but that was one of many matches, especially around then, that produced uh, an unbelievable sort of intensity, I think. Yeah, um, the, that was the rivalry. I mean, Kerry Toronto, there's a triangle there between the three of them, but uh, Toronto, I think 2005 was the the zenith of the whole thing because they played an Ulster final which was uh, dour but enthralling in its own way. The replay was uh, even dour and even more enthralling. And then the other semi final, of course, was decided by Canavan again uh, with a free in the very last minute. So they were absolutely amazing games. And it's still kind of, it. it's still the, 
it's still maybe the glamour rivalry in Ulster football, even though the two of them are, are not really uh, at the at the at the peak at the moment. Well, it certainly seems to be, given the stories about the scenes around the Athletic Grounds in Armagh yesterday. Supporters clamouring to catch a glimpse of the McKenna Cup game between the two teams. And this is a pre-season friendly, essentially, but eight and a half thousand people managed to fight their way through, uh, roughly around that figure. Anyway, Oshin McConville, were you one of those? Oh, and I, I was one of the people that tried to get in. Um, I was in the queue. I don't like to go too early to games. I was in the queue about 10 to 2. and I presume the game was starting at 2 o'clock because nobody had relayed the message that it wasn't. So uh, people in front of me had been there for about 20 minutes. So uh, by my calculation, it would have been half time. So I just turned on my heel and went home, to be honest. Um, hang on a second hold on hold on you're Oshie McConville can you yeah, not first of all that's can, can you not put a few strings there don't you know who I am well, you, well you can imagine if I did <laughs> <laughs> the repercussions of, of such such actions but uh, look at uh, it was I suppose I didn't see I didn't think there was going to be eight and a half thousand people obviously the Ulster Council didn't think there was going to be eight and a half thousand people and uh, in fact that only one steward on um, didn't have things but I play well. I actually didn't play, but in 2006, there was 20,000 at a McKenna Cup final that was played in Kearson Park between Tyrone and Armagh. I was actually a spectator at that because we were still in the club championship at the time as well, which is absolutely amazing. So it's still as popular as ever. And then I suppose with the bit of fifty cost at the start of the game, that sort of helps things as well. Yeah, I mean, is this kind of the I was saying earlier? It's basically the GA equivalent of um, the St Stephen's Day shoppers queuing up at 6 a.m. Uh, you know, like the morning after Christmas, yeah. where you don't admire them for their dedication to the, getting a bargain. You actually just say, these people are complete lunatics. What the <laughs> hell are they doing? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're standing in a queue for half an hour to get into a McKenna Cup game, it's like it's nearly like a laboratory experiment. To see, just how much uh, terrible conditions will these people put up with to see some football after three and a half months of no football? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I suppose to say that there was a hunger for that game, you know, would be, would be uh, putting it mildly. I think people were uh, obviously cooked up for a long time over Christmas, and they had uh, signalled this as the first time out of the house, and and were, come hell or high water, they were gonna they were gonna make it to the game. Um, but as I say, in, in, funny thing in January, there is a real um, desire for people to get out, you know, and watch and watch uh, matches because. We're used to the GA going 12 months of the year now, and as a result of that, people want to see football 12 months of the year. And the fact that there wasn't a lot on in December, um, they come out in their droves then for the McKenna Cup. Is the McGeaney factor a play here as well? Is this the first we've seen about that, that there is just going to be that step up in the, in the, in the intensity of support, given that McGeaney's taken over as number one? Absolutely. I think in Armagh, you know, there's a, there's a real excitement, there's a real buzz around about. Uh, you know what changes he's going to going to make, um, and people are going to support him because uh, in our Kim again, he's you know we use the word legend you know quite a lot, but he he really is that, and he's an iconic figure, I suppose if you like you know as far as our people are concerned, and people were going to come out and see, I suppose, the start of his reign, and and I think you'll find that. Whatever support Armagh had last year, it'll be double or travel from, from this time last year. You mentioned the fisticuffs. A couple of players sent off, and Armagh had two more sent off later in the game. So three uh, in total. Now, um, I'm sure you you wouldn't condone this kind of thing, Oshin, but uh, do you think some Armagh supporters mightn't be too displeased that there there's a certain level of fight among the team so early in the year? 
Absolutely, and I think it's something that uh, that has been going on with Armagh, I think, from last year in the Cavan game, and I think they've almost uh, created something now that is going to be more difficult to stop than anything else. Um, they, uh, they're they not going to take anything laying down. And the funny thing is that uh, Tyrone had mentioned in the build-up to this game that whatever uh, was thrown at them physically that they were going to be able to stand up to because they felt they were bullied in the championship game last year. So uh, sort of meeting fire with fire. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that I'm out, you know, are looking to do. They're looking to um, roll the year back a little bit and go back to what made, you know, us... Uh, a good team for for ten years, and one of the things was our physicality. And I think you know it's back to basics when it, when it comes to that. I think uh, they're going to signal their intent very very early on. I'll be honest with you, oh, they're going to need that if if they're going to like people are talking about am I getting a, a division three as uh, just a matter of form? I think they really need to get a division three, but. If they are, they're going to need to, you know, be right out there in the physical stakes. Because I think as you get down to divisions, that's something that you find that the, you know, the, the physicality is is maybe up even a little bit. You didn't manage to make it in, as you said, Oshim. I'm sure you've been talking to people about how the game went. And uh, Jamie Clark, we were interested to see, was playing in the half back line for Armagh, which seems kind of crazy given how. Yeah, Oshin, I'm sorry, this is ridiculous. I mean, is this what we have to do? Like. Is there a, is that the only place you can play a player like Jamie Clark now? Is this the 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 game we're left with? Well, there's two things. Uh, well, the first thing is that I believe Jamie was told that uh, this was uh, to help his fitness and the fact that he ha- hadn't uh, he missed out in a couple of weeks training back in November whenever I started training. Um, so I think it was just purely a fitness thing. Um, I presume he'd be back in the forward lane come come the league, but for now you wouldn't know where you'd see him playing. And I think it really is an experimental competition for some people, for some new managers, you know, who may be under pressure to get results early on. It, it's it's a must-win game yesterday, and the next game is a must-win. And if you can win the McKenna Cup, it takes the pressure off you and different things. Yeah, for McGinney, I'm sure he's not looking at the guy. I'm sure he's looking at get out of Division 3 and have a, let's have a good run, maybe win an Ulster Championship, and that's what he's set, set, uh, setting his sights on. So he will be using this as very much experimental. Uh, I like to think the next argument game I go to, uh, Jamie Clark won't be sitting in front of the full-back lane, but who knows, you know, different managers see things differently, and I suppose if you can get him on the ball as much as he got on the ball when he came on yesterday, then that's... The positive thing, but he's too far from goal, obviously. So, oh, uh, yeah. it's an experiment. experiment that will be dispensed with. <laughs> yeah, experimental is one thing, but I mean that just seems like uh, nutty professor kind of stuff. All right, Jamie Clark playing it <laughs> yeah. wing back. Yeah, you, you, you can tell he's all right. I was going to say the first <laughs> dispute between a, a club manager and county manager is in the offing there. But just so she know, uh, uh, the overall sense of the intensity of the fixture as you said as we discussed there and just the craziness of all the people trying to get in to watch it now, particularly given that these are experimental teams is there still a sense among supporters of both counties would they both like to believe that they're still the big two despite the fact that clearly Donegal have been the top team in Ulster for the last four years I think there's a real hunger for, for, for both of those teams to try and get up there and try and be the next Donegal to try and dominate for the next couple of years I think Donegal, uh, Tyrone really feel as if they've underachieved over the last couple of years. I think they really feel as if they have this, all of the structures in place 
they have the minor teams, they have had the good under-21 teams who are coming through, and to pick, uh, to cherry-pick the players off those, to add to the, to the squad that they already had, the likes of Cavan and Cahill McCarran coming back, and all those positives that they had yesterday. Um, and I think they still feel as if, you know, they've really underachieved over the last couple of years and that they are, you know, a force to be reckoned with. I'm uh, probably slightly different in that they're probably coming from uh they're probably coming from somewhere with limited underage success, um and they're bringing through new players. They have gone to the junior uh, teams, the intermediate teams and they have they feel as if they have the best one player or two players from every club in the county and and a couple of players in particular yesterday, one in particular, Michael McKenna, was was supposedly very impressive. And he's a player that I have looked at over this past couple of years from he was a minor lad and thought that you know, he would he would make it. But um I suppose it's early days for players like that, but I think Tyrone would have would have greater aspirations of going on and challenging Donegal than probably Amaha would at this stage. All right. Oshin listen great stuff. Thanks Emil. Thank you. That's one of those things. Stop it! How many players can do this? Duffman can never die. He's 34 years old. It's one of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh yeah, he got more of a tandem. Maybe. I just, uh, I still can't believe Oshin didn't just pull rank. Oh, completely. I mean, I, I don't understand why. First of all, there isn't a VIP lounge in the Armagh Athletic Grounds, and second of all, why it's not called the Oshin McConville Suite. Via, via <laughs> the Oshin McConville Suite. I mean, if you have an Ireland medal, I mean, so many people just, you know, oh, it's in my mother's house. You ask people where their Ireland medal is. It should be around your neck. Ensuring entry into all GA grants for the. For the no, for I don't know though, Murph. You know, medal, do medals really carry any currency anymore? I think in, in this age, Murph, he's got to, what he's got to do there is upload some videos of him scoring amazing points and goals. Yeah, just no, maybe just the goal against Kerry. That'll do. Final. Just stick that on his iPhone. Show it to the next person. Just show it to everybody as he walks along, skipping the queue. Yeah. And then take himself in and watch the match. Any questions? <laughs> yeah. Just walk. Just skip the queue and have that playing. Perhaps on a slightly... I mean, if you had a tablet, more people could see it. Sure. It might be more effective. Be the best thing to do, yeah. yeah. But hey, listen, that's, we, we will pass, all, pass on all of these advices to uh, Oshin. We've got a uh, football podcast already out, Ken. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say to you, if I'd say to you now, I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about. Stephen Gerrard. Yeah, he's obviously decided he's going to leave So We'll talk a bit about him. We're going to talk also about the greatest result, arguably, in the career history of David Moyes. I don't think it actually really was the greatest result in David Moyes' career, but it's definitely one of the better ones and uh, uh, to beat Barcelona. Timely. A nice, a, nice way to, uh, a nice way to kind of get things underway at Real Sociedad. So, 
Uh, we'll talk uh, a little bit about that too. One more quick story to bring your attention to from the weekend. I'm sure we'll cover this later in the week in more detail with US Murph, but it is NFL playoff season. It's that time of the season over there uh, throughout January. I remember Don Van Nata, Murph, the reporter we spoke to a, a number of weeks back, maybe a couple of months back, about Jerry Jones, the flamboyant somewhat controversial mm. owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who at the time were in a little bit of a, a funk and have been recently, so, so-called America's team. But they've never lost their massive appeal in the country and certainly among, among the NFL hierarchy, it is generally deemed that the Cowboys are important. It's mm. sort of, you hear this sometimes about Dublin, if it's important to have them in the latter stages of the championship because... And you for know, them to then lose. Uh, and for, well, ideally for them to lose a little bit later on, but certainly there was a, a call yesterday in their game against the Detroit Lions in their wildcard playoff game <laughs> where uh, a flag was thrown against one of the Dallas Cowboys, as this is how a foul is indicated in American football, is an umpire throws a flag onto the field. So the flag is thrown. Then the flag is just slowly picked up and put back in the umpire's mm. pocket. And nothing more is said. <laughs> the Detroit Lions say, wait, wait, wait a minute, you threw the flag there, what, did it just fall out of your hand? No explanation. I don't know if there's even been an explanation after the game. Certainly nothing that has sufficed for the Detroit Lions. Anyway, uh, uh, partly thanks to that call, Dallas Cowboys march through. Probably the perception of the idea that they're uh, this cosseted, you know, super wealthy club wasn't helped by uh, the TV cameras picking out the uh, corporate box in which Jerry Jones sat, not sat actually, stood and hugged mm. Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey. So some of the big, some of the top political bigwigs are absolutely. I, out there I, was, as well. I watched the the first game, the Colts and the Bengals in full, but uh, I I was only sort of jumping back and forth yeah. for the Cowboys Lions game, and uh, I did happen to see the final touchdown that w- ended up winning the game for the Cowboys, and the camera panned, and I saw this extremely rotund man wearing a jumper, which was ill advised. It was an ill advised, ill fitting jumper. Um, and I just looked for a second. I was like, "That wasn't." And it turns out it was indeed the governor, of, like the golden boy of the Republican Party in the in the United States, <laughs> hanging out with Jerry Jones. It was bizarre, absolutely. Well, you need I'm a sure bit of political heft behind you if you're going to try and well, you compete for Super Bowls again. Yeah, you don't really, I suppose. But uh, if it's heft you're looking for. Chris Christie's your man. Uh, If you want to have a listen to our football podcast, it is already out there, as I mentioned, so do uh, check it out. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to today's show. We'll chat to you again later in the week. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. And thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. I thank you all. Thanks, guys. Uh, Check out the website, secondcaptains.com. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.